Witness history at Roland Garros, where old rivalries meet new talent on the clay battleground. Tennis Channel Plus is your place to watch. Stream every court from your phone or smart TV live in HD. Experience three weeks of unparalleled access as the world's top players in tennis face off to see if the veterans maintain their dominance or if a fresh face rises to challenge them. Daily live coverage begins Monday, May 20th. Stream it now with Tennis Channel Plus to be there when it happens. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Tennis Channel Inside In on the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. I'm your host, Mitch Michaels, from the Santa Monica Studios, and as always, delighted to talk about the game you know and love. We have a great show for you this week, recapping the WTA Finals with Chanda Rubin, TC broadcaster and new play-by-play voice. She's thoroughly enjoying that role. We discussed that transition, how she's calling the matches now in the play-by-play chair. We recap Igas Viantek's dominant performance, winning the WTA Finals and reclaiming the number one ranking. Ruben also looks back at Arena Sabalenka and Coco Goff's 2023 seasons, discusses Jessica Pagula's breakthrough, and previews the action already in progress at the Billie Jean King Cup. It's a lot to discuss with Chanda Rubin. Delighted to chat with her. And then I'm joined by Patrick McEnroe, the prominent broadcaster, former U.S. Davis Cup coach, and currently the president of the International Tennis Hall of Fame. If you're a tennis fan, you know who Patrick McEnroe is. I was delighted to chat with him about his role as the Hall of Fame's president, why he looks to invigorate the game and the sport through his position, what it was like coming up in his brother John Shadow, how he carved a career himself, and how he stayed involved in the game as a coach. He still teaches to this day, how he's a broadcaster, what it was like to adjust in that industry, and why he's still just as enthused as ever with the sport of tennis. It's Chanda Rubin and Patrick Macaron on this week's episode of Tennis Channel Inside, and let's start the show. All right, now joining us again on Tennis Channel Inside, and it's been far too long since I chatted with this person. Um, ton of accolades to get to, you know, on and off the court, but also a new play-by-play broadcaster, adding that to a repertoire. It's Chanda Rubin. Chanda, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you. It's great to be with you again, Mitch, and I'm excited. Yeah, I wanted to start there because, you know, a new voice, a new talent, and, uh, you know, I think it's been awesome. The, the reviews have been very glowing. But that switch is nothing to gloss over. Going from the analyst chair to calling matches, how did that experience come up? And, you know, what's the uh, pleasure been like for you to actually be in calling the action now? You know, it's been actually really fun and just a real challenge. And, you know, Ross Schneiderman came mm-hmm. to me and said, look, we want to start putting you in a different role. I think mm-hmm. you'd be good. And, you know, Ross knows talent. And so yeah. I'm like, okay, if, if he thinks I can do it, you know, I feel like, I'm pretty you know, confident I can kind of switch to that role. And I've worked alongside so many terrific play-by-play people. Mm-hmm. You know, our team here at Tennis Channel, I think, is second to none. And I watch, I learn. I'm always impressed by how seamlessly, you know, they can go into these, you know, different matches, mm-hmm. different situations, and just set it up so mm-hmm. beautifully for us analysts. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, that's kind of my goal as well now. I love tennis. I love watching it. I may always have a bit of the analyst when I'm mm-hmm. looking at a match and kind of thinking through it, but it gives me a chance to... Uh, challenge myself in a different way and to kind of bring out and highlight what the person next to me brings to the table. So I I love that part of it. And it's been a lot of fun. Yeah. It's like going from shooting guard to point guard now. So you're (laughs) setting everybody up. I thought of it that way, but I like that comparison. I think, I think one of the, one of the things that impressed me about this place, tennis channel is the versatility shown. It's a reflection of management, putting people in different roles, but the ability to have different people call different matches, the crossover with women's to men's matches, but also in that play by play role, learning from some of the people you mentioned, there are players in tennis. I don't know that other sports are like this. That kind of creates those opportunities for players that played it at a high level. The Jason Goodalls, the Mark Petchies, now yourself that are getting the chance to actually call the action. I think your perspective can be a unique one because you played it at this high level, but you're learning and putting reps in to actually call the action. I don't know that many sports are necessarily like that. So it kind of sets tennis apart a bit. 
It, that's interesting. I think tennis does provide uh, that kind of opportunity, maybe because it's an individual sport, maybe because, you know, the way you go from tournament to tournament, week to week, it's very different. You know, yeah. it's all year long and you're getting reps in different capacities, having to do different roles. Even when we're at tournaments, we're right. sometimes, you know, doing different roles and, you know, doing some hosting alongside mm-hmm. whatever commentating we're doing. And so I think tennis does provide all of these different opportunities to stay involved in the sport and to grow mm-hmm. in the sport and especially as you have new current yeah. players retiring and they're looking to maybe mm-hmm. you know spread their wings try um you know their skills in the booth it just provides a great opportunity for those of us that have played at yeah. a high level we know the game from that mm-hmm. perspective but then we hopefully can kind of transition yeah. and kind of give a little <laughs> bit of that limelight to the next <laughs> ones coming up well there's no <laughs> shortage of matches so i think that the the games themselves are so many in tennis i mean we're on month 11 now wrapping up the the men's season the women's season in the rear view you called the finals with lindsey davenport it was an interesting event to say the least there was challenges but they persevered the ladies of the wta finals did we got to the final match where igis fiantek thoroughly uh, dominated dismantled jessica pagula and from Iga's perspective, Chanda, it was an unbelievable finish to a year where she temporarily lost that number one ranking. Watching her run from the time she was 5-2 down to Vondrasova in the first match, that point on, she was a woman possessed to win the tournament and get that number one ranking back and mission accomplished. Yeah, I think probably none of us thought that Iga Sviantek would be this dominant in taking back the world number one. I mean, it looked like it was going to be a battle once Sabalenka got to number one after the U.S. Open. It looked like it might be, you know, nip Mm -hmm. and tuck, and maybe we'd see some changes, but it would be just a closer affair. But at the tour finals, Sviantek came into it. She knew she had to win all five matches. That was the first sort of business, or she was not going to have a chance to get back to a number one. And to come into an event, it was tough for her that first set you mentioned against Vondrosova, but to work your way into it, to start playing better tennis and to go through that event, playing better and better each match through the conditions that players had to deal with. It was rainy. It was windy. At times it seemed impossible to control this little yellow tennis ball. And yet Sviantek kept pushing and playing her game. I think for me, that was the most impressive part of it. She did get better each and every match and to have the match like she did against Jesse Pagula, who was also playing incredible tennis, yeah. mind you, to have that kind of match with so much on the line. She just continues to be so impressive, Iga Sviantek does. She had that look, right, that it's hard to describe, but elite athletes and sports have it that are at the top. When she gets going, it's like, okay, this is going to be a problem today. It's so hard (laughs) to get her off kilter once she Mm -hmm. finds her line. And once, you know, she has the goal in sight and, you know, she's she's in that rhythm and you could see it definitely in the final. But again, Sabalenka in the semifinal, I think that's where it really shined because that was a tough match on paper as well as in any other yeah. you know space that you looked at it Sabalenka was playing good tennis that's a good point yeah. because some of her failures and we'll call it that you can't win every match but they've been like failure to launch like she hasn't gotten to that point where when she does get going that's when it's almost like game over before we've reached the finish line yeah it's so tough and you think a player like Sabalenka she's got the guns she's got the firepower to kind of throw Iga off when she gets in that space but that was not the case in Cancun and that semifinal win I think that really set the tone for her going into the mm-hmm. final and let's talk about this in the perspective of the major season right it wasn't successful by her standards she doesn't win the U.S. Open there's a lot of places tennis players can go after major season right she lost the ranking she didn't defend her U.S. Open title she refreshed it she's like I'm not waiting till 2024 won the tournament in China and then goes on and wins this to get the ranking back and get the player of the year back with the best season 68 wins just insane and insane for a player that like Coco, I have to remind everyone, still a very young lady with a lot of tennis left in front of her. That's true. She's just 22 years yeah, of age. I mean, yeah. we think of Sviantek now as this established veteran, uh, which, you know, she is showing herself to be, but, you know, still so young, still so much tennis in front of her. And yes, we can look at her year and say it wasn't as good as 2022. It's hard to top 
a year where you went as much as she did and mm -hmm. you were as dominant as she was. But the fact that she was able to defend her major on the red clay, I mean, we pencil her into Roland Garros now every year, like we you know, have done with Rafa almost. Not, yeah. not quite the same, but we're starting to think of her in that uh, you know, similar mindset. It's still not a given that you come in and you win a major like she was able to do this year and to back it up towards the end when, as you said, she could have kind of gone away and just, you know, been ready to reset mm -hmm. for 2024. I've had a good year. Yeah. It, that's where it is. But she kept pushing. She yeah. kept having this incredible motivation to just do a little bit more. And here she is at the end of the year with her second consecutive year ending it as world number one. I mean, that is phenomenal in and of itself. So it's hard to compare yeah. years, but how do you say this one isn't maybe just a little better than last year because of this alone, this way that yeah. she finished? She battled through it. And last year she was on the top for so long that there was no adversity. This year we... The only question we had left was how does she deal with adversity? Pretty, pretty darn good. Uh, so props to her, props to Iga. For Pagula, who lost in the final, I know the sour taste of the last match is going to linger, but she still had a tremendous finish to the year, really a tremendous 2023 Chanda. And getting to the final of this tournament, not losing until the last match, became the only woman to play the top four ranked players in the world, top four seeds at a tournament. It was an unfortunate ending to a great tournament and a great year for Jesse Pagu, who's still a little older than some of these other girls in the tournament, but keeps getting better and better each year. I think her career trajectory remains pretty phenomenal for me. I mean, it was just over the last two or three seasons where she got healthy, mm -hmm. has been able to stay on the tennis court, you know, get in the direction, moving into the top of the game, and then over these last two or three years, started making her move to top five in the world, a career high of number three, and has been solidly there. We sort of take that for granted because she's been so consistent and she just produces sort of this minimum mm. level of tennis. Yeah. And it seems almost out of nowhere. I mean, 2019... She was moving into the top 50, I think, for the yeah. first time. I mean, it, it's crazy when you think about her and, and the age that she is now making this move to the top of the game. But I think she can play with anybody. She can go toe-to-toe -to -toe with anybody. She's got a complete game. Mm -hmm. That's her big strength. She can hit the ball big, but off both sides, she yeah. can do something with the ball. Yeah. And I think it's that variety. It's that ability to think through tough moments, tough mm -hmm. situations, and compete through it um, that has set her apart. And so I think she's going to have a really good 2024 yeah. if she can build on this. She still has <laughs> not lost a match when she's won the first that set was crazy she has gone an entire season with a perfect <laughs> record in that department that's something that was crazy the power stats too kind of take you by surprise how the match against Sabalenka she was out hitting her for large stretches so still a lot there she showed how battle tested she was this year and I do with just a quick note on Sabalenka she loses in the semifinals loses the number one ranking but I think she'll be recharged she had a lot of tennis this year broke through with the major another young player about 25 now so there's still a lot left for her. And, you know, there are times when you wish it would be reined in a little bit, but what gets her to the dance is what makes her a top flight player. So I don't I don't think this loss of the number one rank, ranking will do anything, Chanda, but motivate her. Yes, and, and you got to stick with the game that brought you there. Yeah. Uh, that is the number one rule for any player, let alone a top player uh, who's won a major. So I think for Sabalenka, she can only build and, you know, maybe just settle in a little more to the role, this, this new position mm -hmm. she's in. She's been world number one. She's now contending with Iga Sviantek, a, a bit of a rivalry that's something we didn't say we yeah. couldn't say going into the start of 2023 right. so I think for Sabalenka this is another little shift that you know she's settling into and and just stretching stretching her her <laughs> wings so to speak uh in in this space witness history at Roland Garros where old rivalries meet new talent on the clay battleground Tennis Channel Plus is your place to watch. Stream every court from your phone or smart TV live in HD. Experience three weeks of unparalleled access as the world's top players in tennis face off to see if the veterans maintain their dominance or if a fresh face rises to challenge them. Daily live coverage begins Monday, May 20th. Stream it now with Tennis Channel Plus to be there when it happens. 
More Chanda Rubin here on Tennis Channel Inside and want to also, you know, wrap up the year for Coco Golf, who finished number three in the world, won her first major. It's going to enter uh, her 20th year here and uh, another remarkable young player. The big breakthrough year for her, it was, uh, you know, a huge U.S. Open moment, which we all know. But what's your, you know, evaluation for what the next step is? Because she's proven that she's now a major champion. She's at the top of the game. There is that ego problem that persists. And I think the next step is, okay, can she and will she challenge for the number one ranking? Yeah, I, I think that's the goal for any player and certainly for Coco Golf. That has to be firmly in her sights. Mm -hmm. I mean, she's now at a career high of three in the world, Has is a U.S. Open major champion now. Mm -hmm. That was, I think, a huge hurdle just because of all of the expectations that have been there and, and the mm -hmm. pressure from such a young age. Mm -hmm. And in this day and age of social media and information traveling around so quickly, I think it's been especially tough for her, you know, more than any other mm -hmm. generation. So I think for Coco Golf, it's about winning more majors. Mm -hmm. You know, she's talked about that. Yeah. And that is the, the bar. It's the barometer for any player winning titles and how many titles can you win in a year mm -hmm. uh, and, and how big are those titles? So for golf, I think that's going to be the, the primary thing. But yes, getting to world number one, absolutely. She's num been number one in doubles. Yeah. Why not? Complete the resume. <laughs> it would be startlingly impressive. It feels like it's on the horizon. And yeah, Iga gives everybody problems. That's mm -hmm. a tough matchup for her. And we saw it in the finals. But you know, she can compete with anyone and you want to see what little nuances. Remember, too, with the age, which I keep bringing up, but there's still time to put wrinkles and nuances in your game. So this is not even close to the finished product of what we're going to see. I think one of the best things for any player, and this is how I thought about it as a player, is to play the best and to mm -hmm. test yourself against the best and to be pushed and to have mm -hmm. that motivation that the, the players or that player that is tough <laughs> for you to get past. Yeah. And that's what you think about when you're practicing yeah. new shots and you're trying to add to, to your tool bag, yeah. you got something, you know, a goal in front of you and something tangible. And so I think with Iga Sviantek and, and the difficulty of that matchup, mm -hmm. the fact that she did get a win mm -hmm. over the summer against her, that's, mm -hmm. you know, a big, kind of hurdle to get over just yeah. getting that first win under your belt is it ever going to be an easy matchup I don't think mm -hmm. it will but it does give golf that extra motivation I think mm -hmm. that's going to be good for her game she's continuing to grow continuing to improve yeah. and that's going to be the key she's got to be on that track and I think you know the sky's the limit for her like measuring yourself against the best even in, in your day it was you know the Steffi Graffs of the world that were hey it wasn't wasn't the most fun name to see in the draw but you know, you want to know what the standard is. Those were players who made stars, and yeah. you had to go through them yeah. for the biggest trophies, the biggest titles. You knew that's what it was, and so you worked towards that goal. Well, it was a stunning year for Coco. The rest of the ladies also shout out to uh, Storm Hunter for being the number one doubles player in the world. So we've got the shortest offseason, I think, in all of sports coming up. So hopefully there's some R&R. &R. But then, you know, you know what it's like, too. It's a couple weeks off, and then, okay, let's maybe train a little bit, recover, and see what we can do to get back to the lab. Yeah, I think that is what you look for in your offseason. How best can you reset? What do you take from your experiences mm -hmm. from previous years and even that, yeah. you know, this particular previous season to make next year just a little bit better? Mm -hmm. And that kind of thing ebbs and flows as you go through your career. But it's one of the most important parts of being ready when Australia and those <laughs> events come around. It's one of the most important parts of being ready for it. Can't wait to see which women step up to start 2024, enjoy their, you know, deserved time off. Uh, quickly, just on the men's side in Paris, we had, you know, Djokovic beat Dimitrov in the final. Uh, Djokovic at 36, I keep coming back to this. It's just what he's done. He hasn't lost since the since Wimbledon, essentially. So it's just, it's crazy. You know, it's been a number of years now where Djokovic was maybe one match short. That happened this year. One <laughs> match short of winning all four yeah. of the, I mean, in hindsight, you look at it and you go, how is he doing this still post 35 now? And he still looks as fit as ever. He looks like he can go the distance with anybody age out of the window. Uh, and he just seems to keep being motivated to 
do more and more. And he said it. He wants to win everything and break every record. I mean, that's a special type yeah. of mindset. He wants there to be you no know? doubt. No doubt at all. And yep. then he still wants yeah. more. You know, yeah. it, it's uh-huh. it's you can imagine it being never ending, but it's phenomenal for us, you mm-hmm. know, to be a witness to it and, and to still be able to enjoy seeing him go out there and compete yep. at the level he competes at. I was happy to see what Grigor did this week and also maybe even more pleasantly, you know, surprised slash happy, which is how much the tours. And I say that men and women both like him and wanted him to do well. This is, you know, it wasn't that long ago. He was the baby fed moniker coming up and one of the guys and has had, you know, close calls, but disappointments. Now he's the Wiley veteran, but played some phenomenal tennis until he ran into the greatest of all time. I think, you know, everybody deals with that problem when they run into Djokovic. So that, you know, it's no shame in that Dimitrov, having a little bit of a resurgence and really just showing the full complete game that he has. I mean, he's one of the most talented guys out there and in his own way, you know, Mm -hmm. to not compare him to one of the greatest of all times, but just look at his game and how he can go toe to toe against some of the best players. I think for any player, it's that belief and that mindset you have to have that doesn't matter what anybody else says or thinks you know what you can do right. going out there. And I think maybe Dimitrov, he's getting to that space yeah. again. Those are some big wins, especially yeah. over Tsitsipas in that semifinal. So he loses in the final to Djokovic, the final eight or set in Turin that will start this weekend, this Sunday coming up. Uh, any, you know, it, it's interesting to see the field. Does anything surprise you about that? It's Djokovic and a bunch of, like, next generation guys. He's 10 years older than the next oldest. But a lot of the same names from last year, a couple of new ones. What stands out about the field in Turin? You know, I think, you know, seeing Alcaraz certainly for the first time, I mean, you know, he's had some injuries and you just hope that when he gets to this stage, you know, of the year, he can stay healthy. I mean, that is sort of the next goal when you start winning the way Alcaraz has started winning. Uh, so it'll be nice to see him, you know, his making his first appearance at the uh, at the tour finals. And you mentioned the other debutante will be Holger Runa, yeah. you know, so. Maybe a, a little surprise in the end how things unfolded. Those last two or yeah. three spots were up for grabs, and, you know, he was able, you know, to work his way in. So that's a real opportunity. Overall, though, I mean, these have been the best guys over the course yeah. of the year. No big surprises. You know, center for me has been – I wouldn't say surprise, but he's been the most interesting in terms of what his upside is and trying to sort of capitalize on that. So I'm looking forward to seeing how he performs and how he does uh, in that field with the way he's been playing. It's been nice to see Medvedev there again, Tsitsipas Verev. Yeah, it's pretty much standard. These have been the top guys. There's been some movement, but uh, much deserved there. Uh, Before I let you go, this has been a blast talking to Chanda Rubin. We've got tennis this week. The Billie Jean King Cup is uh, at the forefront, just started today. Uh, So there's been some epic matches. You're just coming here from calling a 2-hour, 45-minute two-set match. It was close (laughs) to three hours. Don't short it. Don't short it. (laughs) It's exciting. And I know the format's a little different with uh, the ties and the central locations, but we're seeing a lot of players commit the USA team. It's the last year Kathy Rinaldi's coaching before Lindsay Davenport takes over. So I think there'll be some good matches in this one. I think it's always good to see how much this means. Even at the end of a long season, these players still want to represent their country. I think that's the, the true test. And, you know, players at times are having to come from across the world to mm-hmm. get to wherever the tie is being played. And you see then how much it means um, to players. You see it in, in the way they compete. I mean, you mm-hmm. talk about that almost three-hour match at the end. It's because it means so much. It's because you're putting your heart and soul into it. You know, it's not just a one-off thing for these players. They try to have camaraderie and, and really work as a team in the days leading up to the Billie Jean King Cup. And I remember those days, you know, so well. Sometimes they were the most (laughs) nerve-wracking, you know, how do I make it through the tension going on right now? That type of feeling. And then other moments it was euphoric because you found a way through that all to rise to a level for your team and for your country. So it's fun for me from that perspective. How were you as a player reacting to maybe a last minute change. I know tennis players are like really stuck in their rituals and routines, but if the situation did ever come up where it's like, Hey, line up chains, like you're in now, how would you react to something like that? You got to be ready to go. And I think, you know, if you 
are there, you're on the bench, mm-hmm. you don't know who's going to be put mm-hmm. into those singles matches, or maybe, you know, the lineups have been set, but you know there can be, mm-hmm. you know, some, yeah. some movement going on. You just want to be ready. Yeah. You want to have yourself in the right frame of mind. Hopefully you've had some good practices in the lead-up week, lead-up days, yeah. and that you're ready to play. That's the most important part. So I feel for every player who steps out there, you can yeah. see it, how much they want that, and uh, we've been seeing some good matches as a result. We certainly have also want to point out the U.S. women. I know the U.S. men have had a resurgence with four in the top 15 eight in the top 50 with Peyton Stearns knocking on the door so still that depth we know about golf and Pagua but the rest of the ladies and showing what can happen for the Emma Navarro's Caroline Dolhides Alicia Parks that they can have some good years big results at big tournaments you know there's attainable ranking movement for them as well Absolutely. And, you know, seeing players who are doing well already, who are at the top, that's more motivation for those who are trying to get there for the first time. You've got a couple of Grand Slam champions on the U.S. Billie Jean King Cup team. You know, so you've got some real options to work with. Um, And I think, you know, that in a team atmosphere and the team format that comes through, that's a real a real bonus. Well, this has been a blast, Chan. I appreciate you taking the time. want to finish with another congrats. The biggest team right now that keeps growing is the WTA Moms team. So Belinda Benchitz is going to be the newest addition. <laughs> and I know as a mom yourself, this has just got to be great seeing all these players that have been proven. Now, they've been shown the blueprint that you can have a kid, you can come back, still play elite-level tennis. I think that's the real takeaway. If, you know, For women, for so many years, there was maybe that limitation placed on them that you had to wait until you were done to start your family or if by chance you started it while you were playing you weren't going to be able to do much anymore and it was going to be over your opportunities your career and we're seeing that that's just not the case so I think it's a tremendous uh, step for women and individually for you know players to be able to make those decisions and and you know have that joy Uh, it's wonderful so hopefully Belinda Benchich wish her the best and and hopefully we do see her back out when she's ready it's great it's awesome we know they're competitive too because now they want to be, I want to be the best W team. I'm on the best results. Well, so and you want to bring your yeah. baby out on court and, and take <laughs> yeah. a picture with them with a trophy. Yeah, that's like the now thing. there are some goals here. Yeah, that's <laughs> perfect. Uh, Chandra Rubin, always a pleasure. Congrats again on the new play by play foray at Tennis Channel. And uh, thanks again for coming on the podcast. Thank you. It was a pleasure. All right, huge thanks to Chandra Rubin, who is a natural in the play by play role position. So props to her. Thanks for all that analysis. You never know when we're going to chat again, but it's always a treat talking to Chanda Rubin. Next up, it's my honor to talk with Patrick McEnroe, one of the prominent voices of tennis that there is, the new president of the International Tennis Hall of Fame. We discussed that role, what he hopes to accomplish, sitting in the big chair there at the International Tennis Hall of Fame. We get into his background, how he followed in his brother John's footsteps, made it on tour, decided to get into broadcasting, how he caught the coaching bug, what it was like serving as the United States Davis Cup captain when they won the title in 2007. All that and more with Patrick McEnroe. Here he is now on Tennis Channel Inside It. All right, Tennis Channel Inside In is joined now uh, an esteemed broadcaster, a coach, a tennis professional himself, I'm going to get a little winded reading all these accolades, but somebody I grew up listening to and, uh, you know, now currently the president of the International Tennis Hall of Fame. And I should also point out, coach the Davis Cup, the United States men's team to their title in 2007. Patrick Macro joining the show. Patrick, honored to talk to you. This should be fun. A lot going on in your world. So uh, thanks again for joining the podcast. Uh, I appreciate you having me, Mitch. It's great to be on with you. Thanks. Yeah, there's a lot of different places. I didn't want to make you sound too old saying I grew up listening to you talk, but we, we kind of had to skip. So you, you you accomplished that, okay? So I'm feel I just had surgery on my left shoulder a couple of weeks ago, um, which is not my I play with the two handed backhand, but uh, I had surgery on my right one way back in the day, and the same doctor, Doctor David Alchek, who's one of the most esteemed um, shoulder specialists, amongst other things, he did my left shoulder, so. A little sore, but after three weeks, I'm pretty happy with the progress. But to your point, yes, Mitch, I'm getting older, but aren't we all? Yeah, that's true. And and I will say, I wasn't even planning to start there, but tennis players, and and I don't think, and maybe you can expand on this, people understand, because it's not what we would call physical sport in terms of physical contact with the opponent, but 
you know, you players that have played for decades and wear a lot of this wear and tear in your body and what it takes to not only make it on the tour, but to make it as a successful pro, you're living proof of proof of it as well, that there's a lot that goes into it. There's a lot that, you know, you're going to unfortunately have to deal with going forward. Yeah, there's a lot of wear and tear. It's not, as you said, of the of the violent persuasion, like in football or some other uh, contact sports. But, you know, the especially now, I mean, I'm, I'm just amazed, Mitch, at what these players uh, nowadays are doing on the court. You know, the the movement, the explosive change of direction, um, you know, the time of play, obviously, is similar to what it was when when I was playing, you know, the long matches and so on. But just the speed of each point is just remarkable now. So, you know, the players have adjusted over time. Uh, you see a lot more off the court work being done with the, with the top players, getting their, their bodies ready for the wear and tear, you know, flexibility, mobility, that seems to be even yeah. more important now than it's ever been. So, but I, I just marvel at what these, these modern players are able to do. And as we're seeing nowadays, do it for a, extended period of time you know these players playing I mean we know the all-time greats are doing it but there's a lot of players that are you know top 100 players I was watching last night on tennis channel Fognini Mm -hmm. you know he's I think he's 37 38 now um you know was a top 10 player and he's still out there you know playing at a pretty high level I mean he's dropped down obviously a bit in the rankings but you still see a lot of players that are able to maintain their careers for a long time which I think is great for the sport do you think that is like a rising tide lifting all boats where they're seeing other old players and maybe in not just your era, but eras before where there wasn't these old guards? It was so rare to see a player 35, 36 playing. Obviously, Djokovic is the standard, but I do think it helps to see a lot of your peers and contemporaries still going and gives you that motivation to stay out there. Yeah, there's no doubt. I mean, if you go back to the 60s and 70s, obviously a lot of players, you go, you know, think of Ken Rosewall getting to the U.S. Open final at 40, you know, when he played an upstart named Jimmy Connors. So players were doing it. And then in my era, you know, in the 80s into the 90s, players, you know, you, you sort of felt like at 30, that was kind of the time when you, you almost retired. I mean, even greats like Becker and Edberg, you know, my brother was was in his prime in his mid-20s. Borg retired very young. Connor sort of was was very unusual in his day that he was able to play into his late thirties at 40 Agassi had a bit of a run as well, you know, in the thirties, but, but definitely this past era, Mitch with, with Roger Serena, you know, Venus is, you know, God bless her still out there playing obviously Rafa Novak. Um, but as I said, even, even other players like Fognini, like Wawrinka has come back off of surgery. So I think it's great. And to answer your question, absolutely. I mean, the players are, you know, seeing what other players are doing, they're taking care of themselves a lot better. Those that can afford to have full teams around them obviously are able to do that. And that helps in um, with the longevity that we're seeing from some of these all-time greats. Yeah, it certainly is remarkable to see. You know, They just keep moving the goalposts and, and redefining what it is to be great and everything that they've gotten, they've deserved, and they've earned. Uh, getting back to your tennis journey, and I know it starts with that famous Port Washington Tennis Academy that produced your brother, produced other great players. How much of your falling in love with the sport and then going at it competitively on the professional level was following in your brother's footsteps? And how much of it was just falling in love with the sport on your own? Because that's the part I don't think a lot of us, myself included, really know about your individual story. Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, it's a little combination of both because, you know, obviously as the youngest of three boys, um, I did really whatever my brothers did. I have another brother, Mark, who is a good tennis player, didn't make it a profession. So whatever my brothers did, whether it was playing stickball, playing stoop ball, you know, going down to the field and playing basketball or playing tennis, you know, that's what that's what I wanted to do. I always had uh, a special affinity for tennis, mostly probably Mitch, because I just happened to be pretty good at it. You know, I love sports. I love playing soccer. I played soccer and basketball, uh, baseball, you know, through school. I even played soccer all the way through high school, which my brother did as well. But tennis was something that I liked the individual nature of it as, as much yeah. as I love team sports. You know, the idea of being out there on your own. I mean, I have great memories of hitting against the wall at the Douglaston Club. I and mean, that's how I learned how to play where we grew up in, in Queens, New York, which was sort of a precursor to me even going to the Port Washington Tennis Academy. Okay. So between that and going to Port as a kid and participating in the groups and just being around tennis, um, 
that that was really number one. It was it was it, and and in fact, as I got older and my brother became famous, it, it was actually more of a challenge being John's brother, you know, because he was so famous and because I wasn't, you know, quite as good as him. Although I got to be a pro, which as I'm learning in my years now at our tennis academy, that in and of itself is a um, is hugely difficult to accomplish. So. Uh, yeah. But over the years, as I was growing up, I had to like kind of look myself in the mirror a lot and say, why am I doing this? Because I had to deal with a lot of crap, you know, being John's <laughs> younger brother. Um, but at the end of the day, it was because I loved the game. I loved the sport. And um, I was pretty good at it. And I know you want to do like most people want to do if they have older brothers, what they're doing and want to be around them in, in the same activities. You know, I know you get asked a lot about what it was like with, with John, but what was it like seeing your brother, just the older brother you looked up to, becoming this megastar? Like just watching him transcend into something uber famous and, you know, redefining what tennis really was in this country. Yeah, I got to say it was, um, you know, initially when it happened, which I sort of go back to that semifinal run he had at Wimbledon when he was a teenager. You know, he came out of the qualities. He was just over there to play the juniors. Next thing you know, he's playing Connors on center court. Um, at Wimbledon in the, in the semifinal. And, uh, you know, from that point on, it, it was sort of just became normal for us. I mean, it was unusual initially to have, you know, I remember reporters coming to our house and, you know, when John would come back from Wimbledon or winning the U.S. Open, they would put stuff on our lawn, you know, our, our neighbors and so on, congratulating them. But from it really became almost normal, which was weird because it, it – uh, you know, I was so young when he first, so I was 10, you know, 10, 11 around the time when he made that Wimbledon breakthrough. And so I have a lot of memories of playing junior tennis from that point on where everywhere I went, even when I was a highly ranked junior player, which I was throughout much of my career, you know, I'd go to different cities and there, you know, here's John McEnroe's brother, even though I was, you know, seated number three in the national. So I, so I got used to that part of it at a pretty young age. And I think our whole family did um, did as well from a tennis side and i know you guys had similar styles no one really plays like your brother john obviously yeah, but what, what did you take from him and what kind of did you work on to really make your own game and, and kind of not rebel but just put your own spin on how you play the game yeah i mean i think we both had very good uh, hand-eye coordination i mean he obviously is a whole nother level but that was that was one of my strengths which was sort of seeing the ball taking it early you know the return of serve was was definitely my strength and my game my back my two-handed backhand was my best shot uh, but I didn't have the speed that he had I didn't have the serve that he had so I was a little bit more of a baseline player counter puncher I couldn't get to the neck because I just wasn't quick enough and I didn't have a good enough serve to serve in volley with any consistency so I sort of found my way um, playing more of a I guess calling it an aggressive baseline game when I could, as I said, I was a little bit more of a counter puncher. So I, what I could take from him, I did, which was, you know, good hands, seeing the ball early. But as you noted in, in, in your question, nobody plays like him. So it was hard to really, I never really tried to emulate his game, but our coach that we had when we were growing up, Tony Palafox, who we met at the Port Washington Tennis Academy when we were both quite young, he ended up leaving there as did we um relatively uh, early in our junior careers um was was also known for having great hands and taking the ball early so he used to teach me that especially on the return of serve which was you know definitely the strength of my game you know and you carved out your own career you went to stanford a couple team titles there and then you know going to the pro tour winning a title and singles a, a bunch and doubles I'm always asking this question to pros that have their their big runs australia in 91 the semi run was there anything different or was there anything that stood out along the way that gave you a sign as someone that played tennis every day that this feels this feels a little special, like something's happening here? Well, never happened again. I made the quarters of the U.S. Open a few years later, but, you know, that ended up being my, my best singles run, although, as you said, I had a couple other good singles results. You know, the quarterfinals at the Open was big for me because it was in my hometown. But I do remember in the first round, Mitch, I was actually down two sets to love against guy named Thomas Hogstead, who went on to become Sharapova's coach and an excellent coach in addition to being a solid player. And I was down two sets and I was down a break in the third. And when I came back and won that match, mostly because of fitness, it was a brutally hot day. And and he just, you know, basically ran out of gas, you know, early in the fourth set. But when I won that match, you know, I'd been doing a lot of off-court stuff. I've been working on my fitness and I realized that, you know, especially in best of five, that that could pay off for me. As I said, it wasn't, you know, I didn't have the 
<clears throat> most naturally powerful game or explosive game. But I, I was in some ways I was better in longer matches because I was pretty fit. And I think that helped me when I won that first round match. I was like, wow, I can win a match like that in a big tournament. And that sort of propelled me through the rest of the tournament and took advantage of a good draw. But, uh, you know, I actually had a chance against Becker in that semifinals. And I think the kiss of death, Mitch, was when I was up a, I was up a set in the semis against Becker and and he was serving I'm going to say 2 3 something like that in in the, in the in the second set and I had break point and I thought to myself man I said you know if I could get this I, I could actually be in the finals of the Australian Open and that's when the wheels fell off you know as soon as I started thinking about that you know he turned it up he ended up winning the tournament and you know beat me in four but uh that was certainly a run where it, it was nice cuz I was one of the last players to actually get in the main draw my ranking was outside the top 100 going into that Australian Open. So ironically, sort of my best result ever in a major was when I was sort of at my lowest ranking coming into the major. Is that something, is that story something you tell kids that you work with now or players you work with now that stay in the moment because something like that could be the kiss of death? Well, I, you know, I call it, well, that and also preparing to to be successful. So I felt that it was it was a combination of both. You know, I prepared, I'd done the work. So when the opportunity came, I took advantage. You know, if I hadn't have been super fit, if I hadn't have been doing that, you know, I could have easily lost in the first round or maybe not recovered for the second round. And then at the same time, you know, when 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 you do have let a, an opportunity slip away to know to don't let it slip away because of what you just mentioned. You know, I don't think that was the reason I lost a match, but, um, you know, Becker was pretty darn good at the time and he was just better than me. But I do think that that's something that for kids to just kind of be where you are, um, play point to point as much as you can. And uh, don't try not to think about the bigger picture of what's going on. You know, as your tennis career was winding down, I know you officially retired in 98, but you started to do commentary before that, CBS, other networks, you were, you know, staying involved. Was that something in the back of your mind that you were determined or at least passionate about staying involved in the game? Or did that kind of organically happen where here you are, you know, you've been retired for over 25 years now and you're still very much involved with tennis. What was that process like for you? You know, I, I got lucky that I got an opportunity as I was coming back from a couple of shoulder surgeries, still trying to play, though I wasn't able to really be successful sort of from mid-96 until, as you said, 90. Even I even started doing some stuff with ESPN, 96, 97. Um, but I did always want to be in television. I used to love um, watching you know, the U.S. Open with Tony Trabert and Pat Summerall and Nuke. And, you know, I used to I used to watch that. I used to love football, watching football. And Dick Vitale was someone I looked up to, who I've become friendly with over the years, who's a big tennis fan, by the way. So there were but, – but did I ever think, like, it was definitely going to happen? It wasn't like I, I didn't go to broadcasting school or journalism school. But when I got the opportunity, uh, partly because of my name, you know, no doubt, I took advantage of it. And uh, – I loved it. You know, I loved doing it right from the start. I think I was pretty, pretty natural at it right away. Um, obviously, I've worked on it over the years. So, but there were times when I thought to myself, should I get into something else? Mm. You know, I considered going to a graduate school, I actually applied and got into Columbia um, Graduate School for Business um, and, and was seriously considering doing that. And then I got named the Davis Cup captain. So that really was what I really, you know, that was a dream of mine to become the Davis Cup captain. The TV certainly helped me get um, that attention. My name certainly helped. So yeah. all these things gave me opportunities to stay in the game. And when I saw that I could do that and make a living, I was like, well, I think I'll stay in the game. So it's it's worked out pretty well. I've been able to do the, the commentary work for the USTA, you know, now with my brother at our academy in New York, which I love doing. So I've been extremely lucky to be able to do a lot of different things. And now, of course, be the president of the International Tennis Hall of Fame is another great honor to be participating in that and trying to help them, you know, get to the next level. Yeah, and then, of course, it seems like the years just fly by. It feels like yesterday, probably, that you were just thinking, what should I do? Is TV here? And then it's been a couple of decades and here you are just a tennis lifer. And you mentioned, and I agree, you have a lot of you know natural ability to just fit into the, the sport of tennis and calling it on the microphone. But I know that other people in that same scenario have to and acknowledge it was a lot of work. There was a lot of stuff I had to learn and 
knowing a lot about tennis and, you know, does not necessarily translate to television. What were some of the, not challenges, but I guess things you had to learn to hone skill-wise? Well, definitely, the, you know, when I first started at CBS, I did a lot in the studio. So I'd have to learn about the cameras and, who do, you know, when to look at the camera, when to look at your co-host or whoever's with you. So there are a lot of, you know, just kind of minor things about um, television production that I had to learn. But again, I love I love the game. Uh, I I think the fact that being John's brother when I was a kid, I mean, I'm still John's brother as a grown man, but, you know, getting asked a lot of questions, I was sort of used to being the guy that, you know, the reporters would come to and talk to a junior tournament. So I became quite comfortable in that uh, world. What I really worked on was being the host myself, you know, then, and that was, you know, why I tried to do play by play as much as I could early on. I did my own radio show for ESPN. That was an all sports show that I do on the weekends. Now doing the podcast, which I've done for the last four years, I always tried to kind of improve myself, improve, improve my skill set just by doing things that sort of pushed me out of my comfort zone, hosting in the studio. I've done some of that over the years, even in the last you know couple of years, I've done more, even some political stuff on CNN and other networks. So that's really pushed me to, you know, get better, to learn about other topics, to, to learn how to deal in other um, realms of television. And I really have enjoyed it. I think I've done pretty well with it but always looking to try to improve and it's got to be a dream right to call a match with your brother like just thinking about the two of you in the in a booth together has to be just a little wild thinking about all the memories yeah it is i mean it's pretty cool to think that um you know i still pinch myself when we're in the in in, in wimbledon center court at the u.s open or, or, or australia call in the finals and that was definitely one of the reasons mitch when i was at espn i was sort of the main uh, color guy and I could see, well, that probably at some point my brother's going to come over here and he's going to sort of take my spot or at least be part of the team. So uh, to be able to learn how to do the play by play and, you know, sometimes it's just me and him. Sometimes obviously we're with Chris Fowler doing yeah. the three in the booth. So I think I've been able to manage whatever's in front of me um, as far as television goes. And I think that's why I've been able to stay yeah. employed for this long. One of the reasons why. For sure. More with Patrick Macro here on Tennis Channel Inside. And I did want to touch on the Davis Cup, your playing career, but also coaching that team to the title. Whenever I hear yourself or your brother speak about the Davis Cup, it's pretty clear how patriotic and how important it is to be a part of that and be a part of representing your country in any iteration. Was that just ingrained in your DNA from your family growing up? Definitely. I mean, uh, we were, as I said, you know, we played a lot of sports, so we were always very committed to uh, team sports, whenever it was. And there was just something about uh, representing your country that was different. I think our parents being relatively new to the country, you know, that both their sets of parents came over from uh, Ireland or England um, in, 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 you know, the last 50, 75 years. So I think there was a real sense of pride from both our parents about being American um, and representing the country. So that was, yes, that was something that was definitely drilled in that that was something to be very prideful of and to you know sort of answer the call if it ever came obviously for my brother it came quite a bit you know as a player I was lucky enough to play four times and then certainly as a captain um, you know I served for 10 years which was definitely the biggest honor of my professional career so I loved it I love representing the U.S. being part of a team again because it give it gave it gave us that team part of tennis which you miss you yeah. know, being, you know, on the professional tour. And that's why I love the team events, even the new ones that have come up with the last couple of years, the Labor Cup, which I've been lucky enough to be involved with. But um, putting on the red, white and blue and representing the U.S. for all those years with with a great group of players was was a huge honor. Yeah, that team camaraderie that you don't normally have. You can tell tennis players just are, are latching on as many opportunities as they get. And uh, it, it is an interesting role, right? Being a captain where you're, you're coaching on the now there's coaching in tennis, but you're coaching in the match and there's, you know, you don't want to deal too drastically with players. But what was your strategy like when you were a captain in some of these big matches dealing with the players like Roddick, like Blake, like Marty Fish? What was your strategy as a captain? It really depended on the player, Mitch, and you're 100% right. I mean, you know, especially being the Davis Cup captain, I didn't spend that many weeks a year with them. I tried to keep in touch with them over the course of the year, of the season. I, I made a real effort to try to keep in touch with their coaches so I knew kind of what they were working on. 
But I would say for the most part, Mitch, less is more. I mean, these are professionals. These guys are at the top of the game. They're used to being out there on their own. So um, you could get yourself into more trouble if you say something stupid, which Roddick would remind me of many times. You know, he, I, he'd say, yeah, it was the stupidest idea I've ever heard. Uh, you know, the Bryan brothers are a little bit different. They, you know, especially Mike, the right-hander, you know, he liked to, you to talk to him, you know, just remind him of very basic things. James Blake was was different in that he kind of had his, his, his game plan. Roddick was actually a little more analytical about what was going on, um, it, you know, during the match. So you really have to pay attention, like, because he, he could kind of call you on it. Um, you know, Marty was a little more happy-go-lucky. So everybody was a little bit different. But I learned this, Mitch, years ago from my, my great college coach, Dick Gould at Stanford, when I spent my four years there. And he said, when I became the captain or when I was about to become the captain, I called him for advice. And he said, you know, in tennis, because it's an individual sport, the one thing I learned over the years was to treat everybody fairly, but not necessarily the same. Right. And I thought that was great advice because, you know, if it was Andy Roddick coming in, having just, you know, won a big tournament, you know, you pretty much let him do what he's going to do as far as practice goes and how much he wants to practice. If it's a young and up and coming guy, you know, you're going to say, listen, you're going to practice for four hours. You're going to do this. You're going to do that. You're going to do this. So it really depended on the individual and particularly when he got into the match, which is when it's on the line. You know, that's where you can you can say something that might really help or you can say something that might really hurt. And, you don't, as a captain, you, that, that's not the place you want to be. No, no, it's a fine line, and it's a lot harder than it looks. I think we can all see from the outside. But again, you know, props for that team winning in 07. We'll see if they can get another win down the road with uh, all the talent that they've had. But you know, that's just kind of a you know a segue into a bigger topic, Patrick. Is that obviously you love to coach and develop players, not just these pros, but young players. What is it about that process, and what is your favorite part of teaching the game to somebody young that has a love of tennis and is just looking to you to get better at it? Yeah, well, I've learned a lot being at our, our academy here in New York. You know, when I was with the USTA, my job was a little more administrative, more political. Um, I wasn't really on the court as much as I probably would have liked. Um, but here I get to do that a little bit more. I just came from our group from uh, our kids that are mostly homeschooled that come early in the day. And then we have our groups after school. It's really about passion, Mitch, you know, trying to learn, you know, skills, obviously, along the way. But I think it really has to come from the kid that they're passionate about the game. They understand there's going to be a lot of ups and downs. You know, tennis is a tough sport. You mentioned physically, but I think psychologically more than maybe almost any other sport because you are on your own. Uh, you make a lot of mistakes. You lose a lot of matches. Even if you're really good, you know, that happens. So I think it's finding the person that understands that's part of the process. That doesn't mean you don't get pissed off and you don't get frustrated. But you kind of enable are able to see the bigger picture, which is what can I do today to just get a little bit better, to just improve my game a little bit more. And if you do that, to me, you're a success, you know, because most of the uh, skills are genetic that you have in tennis that, you know, that determine whether you're going to be a pro or not. So I really look at the kids individually to say, you know, do they want to be here? Do they want to get better? And if they want to do that, then I'm all all for trying to help. No, that's very that's very insightful wording. And, uh, you know, it's the only sport without a shot, without a game clock that you can just run out to. So you have to finish that's it right. off. And as, you, yeah. and as you said, I was talking to Paul Anacone last week, and he said players at the top even have to learn when they first come on tour how to lose and how to process losses because, as you just said, only one tournament winner. So a lot there. Uh, and, and it segues into the other thing you're doing, the Hall of Fame role, you just got announced the president. So, again, congrats to that. Thanks. Starting this year strong uh, as the president of the International Tennis Hall of Fame in Newport, Rhode Island. How did that role come to be, and what intrigued you about being the person at the helm for this prestigious place? Well, they were looking for someone to take over from Todd Martin, who had a great run there as the CEO, and um, Dan Faber, who ended up taking the job as the CEO, as someone I know really well through his job at the USTA. And we were both sort of interviewing for the CEO job. And it became obvious that the two of us together, I think, would make a great team. Because if I had just been the CEO, there's a lot of things that I wouldn't have been able to do. I think Dan is so well equipped for that particular role. And for me as the president, it's a way for me to, um, 
you know, work with him, work with the Hall of Fame, which obviously I have so much respect for, for the players there, for the history there, for um, being the place where, you know, we celebrate the history of the game and the players themselves. But to me, more like the history of, of, of the sport itself. And uh, I love that about the, what the Hall of Fame represents. So I think I can hopefully bring something to the table to help awareness, to help inspire people that being part of the Hall of Fame, you know, very few professional players can even dream of being a Hall of Famer, right? Yeah. Um, so imagine for the average person. So I think this idea that we want to inspire people to sort of find your own greatness and whatever that is in life. Um, to me, that's that's a great part of what I think the Hall of Fame can do, um, not just in this country, but globally, because tennis is such a global game. And I yeah. look that as I look at that as a big part of my role in trying to help um, spread the message of what the Hall of Fame represents, obviously here in the U.S. Uh, and in the tennis world, but also globally throughout the rest of the world as well. It's always important to understand your history, even passionate tennis fans now that maybe discover the sport. For obvious reasons in the last 10, 15 years, they're used to some iconic players, but it's good to remind them there were icons and eras before that they can learn up about, read, and uh, pay attention to. And you also had a quote in your announcement, too, that I thought was interesting. You know, you want to share and promote the fun side of the sport. Yeah. So if you could expand on that, just the ideas to kind of, you know, do that at the Hall of Fame role and make you know the fun side of tennis more in the mainframe. Well, one of the things that I've seen at at my tennis at our tennis academy here in New York is that there's so many kids, adults that just play, who are not going to be Hall of Fame tennis players, right? But they love the game, they love the sport, and I think part of what the Hall of Fame should do is is spread that message that tennis is a great. I mean, I see it in the you know the leagues, the three point five, four point oh leagues that come to play, and the the group clinics that we have at our academy. You know, people really love the game and are passionate about it. And and believe it or not, many people at that level are even more passionate about trying to get better than professional players. So that, to me, is really inspiring. Even I've given lessons to kids that have no chance of ever playing even college tennis. and yeah. But they love the sport and they love and they want to learn something. And I, and, and I think that's um a great thing about our sport is that you can, whatever level you're at, if you're really into it and you enjoy it, um, you can get so much out of it and it can teach you so much about life, you know, um, handling disappointment in your life, you know, trying to focus on something to, you know, help you get better at something that maybe you're not genetically equipped to do that well, like professional players are. So in some ways I, I, I have, in, in many instances, more respect for people like that, that really want to learn and have fun with the sport. And I think that's something that um, we at the Hall of Fame can do a lot to promote that. Yeah, that's that's powerful stuff. Progress in life is always key. You always want to be working towards something and give yourself some fulfillment there. So tennis being so popular and so passionate, it's it's great to see. And I'm I'm excited to see how you guys continue to grow the game and continue to move forward. And we know you know, I want to wrap with some of the stuff going on in the current game. The game's in pretty good hands. What we saw, well, first with Novak Djokovic at age 36, I mean, there's not much more. I mean, I've been waxing poetically all year, Patrick, for what he's done career-wise, just shattering the record books. But him at 36, like you were talking about this before, what that age used to mean for tennis. Now it seems like in ways he's widening his, his gap, his dominance with the field. It, it really is incredible. I mean, I remember sitting there reminiscing um, as we were talking earlier with my brother at the Wimbledon final after the match ended and we were sort of setting up the rest of the year. And I sort of said offhandedly, you know, I feel like this is going to motivate Djokovic even more, you know, moving forward. And I wouldn't have predicted that he'd go 18 and 0, you know, since Wimbledon final uh, and win three huge titles, including the U S open. To me, the amazing thing, Mitch is, is not, his his total domination is obviously incredible, but it's also like how many matches he's winning that are pretty close. You know, it's mm -hmm. not like he's, you know, some matches he dominates, but, you know, like you go to Paris, which he just won, and, you know, Rublev played the match of his life, and it went the distance. And, you know, somehow, you know, Novak can steamroller, obviously, but he can also, you know, has this ability to just play the big points better than anyone and just win the close matches as well, which... Yeah. 
Normally, as you get older, that becomes a little bit more difficult. Uh, but yeah. normal is not the word we're going to use with him because it, it it's just it really is incredible what he's continuing to do. And I think it's the motivation that's the most incredible. I was actually talking to one of our coaches here at our academy who's Serbian. And we, you know, he, we always talk about Novak. And I said, it was right after he just won Paris. And I said, wow, you know, he did it again. He goes, he goes, it's amazing. He says for him, it's, he's, he's never satisfied. You know, he's never sat. He's, he's always, he's, he's so hungry to keep mm-hmm. going uh, after all he's done. So let's enjoy it because it's pretty incredible. Uh, there's obviously, as you, as you intimated, great young talent on the rise um, that are right there. And we've got some great young talent in the U.S., which I'm very excited about. I hope, I hope one of those guys can, one or two can step up and, and win a major or be in a major final. But there's certainly a lot of great stories to look forward to as we look to the year-end championships and then, of course, the beginning of next year in 2024. He's such a chameleon out there evolving, playing how he needs to, doing what he needs to to win. And the close matches thing is such a perfect analysis because it seems like there's always like a 15-minute window where it's like, all right, you might have him. He's on the ropes, but you got you to gotta finish it and go for the kill shot here because he'll find a way out of it and he'll figure it out. It's just really remarkable. Uh, the fact that Alcaraz has stepped up to kind of maybe push in, in this generational battle. It's funny because when, we were, when I was prepping for this interview, I thought about a match that was on ESPN that you called, I distinctly remember Nadal Agassi when Nadal, when Nadal was right. an 18-year-old kid in Canada. Up in Canada. Your, your, your commentary was kind of like before the match became a classic, like this is a seismic generational battle. Like these moments don't come, come along that much where a young kid coming up is facing the Wiley veteran. And that might be enough to keep Djokovic motivated, knowing that these young guys in Alcaraz's case are coming for the throne and are a real threat this time. Yeah, normally over the years, you know, when a young player sort of beat one of the all-time greats, it, it really was a change into the guard. I mean, you go, I remember my brother getting beat by Courier. I remember, you know, as you said, Nadal and Agassi and, you know, even Federer beating Sampras that year at Wimbledon. It's it's almost like you, you kind of feel it's, it's like an inevitability about it, that it's, it's, here, it's here and it's picking up steam. And yet with Djokovic, you know, he's had not just a loss to Alcaraz, but he's had other losses, whereas it's to Rafa at the French or so on. And somehow he just comes back, you know, like he doesn't like he doesn't, <clears throat> you know, he came back stronger after losing that Wimbledon final, um, which is amazing, which shows you again <clears throat> how difficult it is to do. Even the struggles for Alcaraz since that Wimbledon final, you know, show you that the guy's human. It's not as easy as it looks. People just assume, oh, yeah, he's going to be number one. He's going to win every tournament. Not that easy yeah. to do, and somehow Novak still um, is doing it as consistently as ever. He's not playing as much as he used to competitively, but, boy, when he does play, he's ready to go. And you mentioned those Americans that are coming up as well. We have four now in the top 15. It's been you know, the unfortunate stat 20 years since the last major champion going on 21, but for the first time in recent memory, it does feel like that streak could be coming to an end. The four players there, Ben Shelton, obviously a lot to like about his game. Sebastian Cord is not even in the top 15, but a young player to watch. Are you finally seeing maybe the tides turn that there's not only the depth of American men's tennis, but some real potential for some slam winners on the men's side? Well, I think we've seen the depth coming for the last few years. So that was always our goal at the USTA. I mean, it's, it's hard to have a goal of, you know, finding the next Serena Williams, right, or the next Pete Sampras. That, that's really not an achievable goal. But I think what was an achievable goal was just sort of having strength by numbers, which I'm glad to see um, the U.S. has been able to do, you know, particularly on the men's side. Women, we've always had it. And we've also had, you know, some top top all-time greats as well. On the men's side, it's been more difficult to find those players that we think have a chance to actually win a major. And so, you know, um, you've got those four guys, you know, the more veteran of the of the guys with Tiafo, with Fritz, uh, with Tommy Paul, who stepped it up the last couple of years. Opelka, I hope, can come back and be a factor, you know, after his long injuries. He's a great young kid, too. But I think the, the two guys you mentioned may be the two guys that have the best chance to actually win one. Um, mm-hmm. In Corda, who's got the best all-around game of any, any of those players. And Shelton, who's got sort of the most explosive game, you know, with the serve, the forehand, just the sheer athleticism. 
Um, if his, I call, you know, with someone like him, I say he's got the most intangibles. Once yeah. he, once he has the most tangibles with the <laughs> basic bread and butter tennis, I think he can win a major. You know, I think he's that good. He's that explosive. Um, mm-hmm. And I think Corda, if he can just get a little bit stronger, a little bit more physical in the way he plays, particularly off the serve. I love his all-court game and his ability to play, you know, any style. But it's nice to see we've got a great group. And those other guys are just solid as rocks. I just don't know if they've got enough to actually win a major. I think Tiafo, Fritz, Paul, they can be knocking on the door. But I feel like they need some help. Whereas with the other two guys, I feel like they could just burst through and just, you know, be that good. Yeah, Shelton has that it factor, right? Like you can't even maybe describe what that is, but you watch him and you see, okay, this guy's got something special. But yeah, the tangibles and the tangibles were getting there. The, the the streak after the U.S. Open, very impressive that not only did he coast to the end of the year, that he kept getting better. Uh, wrapping up here with Patrick Macro, it's been a blast talking to you here on Tennis Channel Inside In. Want to close with this. Uh, you're going to what, Tanzania in December with your brother? Going uh, yeah, down in- we're looking forward to that trip where I got to recover my shoulder so I can hit some of my two-handed backhands out there in the Serengeti. But it's going to be an awesome trip to spread, uh, you know, the, the, the good vibes of tennis in some place that, you know, quite frankly, has probably never seen it. So hopefully we'll see a lot of kids. It's also going to be just a five-star trip and ability to, you know, go to that part of the world, which I've never been to. So looking forward to it. It's going to be a great group. And um, hopefully we'll get some good photos of us hitting some balls with um, who knows who'll be in the background yeah. there, Mitch. You going to get out on the court with John? Is that yeah. a competitive thing still? Well, you know, um, this particular one, I don't know how competitive it will be, but we're going to have some fun. We're going to do some clinics. We're going to play with some of the guests. Uh, but the answer normally is when we play here at the Academy and no one's watching, of course, it's competitive. He's still out there. He plays with the kids actually in the program a lot, which is great for him and great for the kids. And he can still hit that ball pretty darn well. I don't doubt that. Yeah. Uh, and it sounds like based on the, the entire interview here, which has uh, been a treat, that uh, you're still as enthused about you know being in the game, being involved in tennis, and still as passionate about the sport you, you fell in love with as a kid. Very lucky, very grateful, uh, very happy to still be around it pretty much all the time. So uh, I'm counting my blessings, Mitch, and hopefully I got a, f- a good few more years to go. All right. Well, last thing, why should people come out to Newport, check out the Hall of Fame? What's the hidden gem there, the the man at the top's well, reason well, for well, coming Well, I mean, the museum is amazing. So if you ever get the, you know, I mean, Newport's a great town. It's a great city. There's a lot of history there. Um, the museum, which by the way, is going to undergo a renovation, the early part of 2024. So hopefully by the spring, it'll be brand spanking new. It's just so much history. The grass courts are in great shape. I got to hit on them this past year during the tournament. Um, so there's just so much to see there. There's so much awesome history and appreciation for what, you know, sort of how the game started in this country and, and also all over the world and, uh, hopefully great things to come up there as well. Can't wait to see it. Patrick Macro, you can check him out on the uh, Holding Court podcast. He's running the Tennis Hall of Fame. He's also teaching with his brother, his brother's academy as well. Uh, Patrick, this was a blast. Thanks for taking the time. Really appreciate it. And uh, best of luck with all those endeavors you got going in the tennis world. Thanks for coming on the show. Appreciate you having me on the show. Good job. A tremendous thanks to both Shanda Rubin and Patrick McEnroe for appearing as guests on this week's episode of the podcast. And a reminder, if you enjoy this show, you can find it on the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. And you can also find Tennis Channel Inside In on all your podcast platforms, whether that's Spotify, Apple, iHeart, Amazon Music. Just search Tennis Channel Inside In. The show will pop up. You can subscribe, leave a rating, a review. It's that simple to get episodes downloaded to your listening device automatically. Tennis Channel Inside In returns next week to discuss the ATP Finals, featuring the top eight male players in the world jockeying for the trophy in a round-robin format in Turin. You're not going to want to miss next week's show as we break down the end of the season, discuss who will take the crown, and look ahead to what 2024 has to offer. Thanks again to Patrick McEnroe and Chanda Rubin. My name is Mitch Michaels. This was Tennis Channel Inside In. Thank you for listening, and I'll talk to you next week.